playoffs in overtime. He threw that 80-yard touchdown. It was like, ah! It was just, I, I love to see the Broncos that year. So I've kind of leaned towards the Broncos. And I was really rooting for Peyton Manning when he faced the Seattle Seahawks two years ago in the, in the Super Bowl. But I knew that something was wrong when the first play of the game, the guy hiked the ball over his head and they got a, a safety against them. Uh, they got obliterated that game. But the next year was their year of redemption. And personally, I was very happy. Sorry, Panther fans. I know there are some Panther fans here. Please don't exit at this moment. Bear with me. But I realized that it, it was just an awesome thing to be able to see the Broncos take the Panthers. I really didn't think Peyton Manning had it in him. He is retired, of course, but can I, I just want you to imagine something. You are actually, you win a, a, a Super Bowl ticket. You're at the Super Bowl, okay? You're picturing this in your mind. You're at the Super Bowl. Both teams are lined up at kickoff, and your team is ready to kick the ball off. And seconds go by, and they're in position, waiting for the kicker to come by and kick it, and they're just waiting. And after a while, they stand up and they just start talking with one another. And this goes on. Are you ready? This goes on for four quarters. Number one, that, that wouldn't happen. But can you imagine at the end of the game, how do you feel? <laughs> you got robbed of what, 1000 2000 whatever price your ticket costs. Or if you got it cheap or win it on the radio. Say, I came here. I've been looking forward to this like all season. And I, they didn't even play the game. You know what? What would you think if when the Israelites crossed the Jordan River and they camped out at Gilgal, they just stayed there? That was it. They just stayed there. They didn't do anything. They didn't fight any battles. They didn't take the land. The land was promised to them. And they refused to go out and fight the battle. And they would say to one, you know, as they're just casually talking, I really don't know if I want to risk my life. Uh, I'm kind of happy right here in these cramped quarters with about 2 million people in this area here. I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of content. You know, it's, it's better than being out in the desert. I, I, think, well, I think I'm just going to stay here. General consensus, we're not going to take the land. We're just going to camp out in Gilgal. Do you realize that that's how many Christians think? Many Christians camp out in their Gilgal. They come to Christ, and if I could draw a picture for you concerning the kingdom of God and the gates to the kingdom of God, they just love hanging out at the gates. They don't go in, they don't investigate, they don't explore, they don't walk the, the streets, they don't go and they, they, they don't do anything in the kingdom. They're too content hanging out at the gates. And that's how many Christians live their lives. They're content at the gates. As we look at this story, it's, it's a number of verses I'm going to read to you. But they didn't stay in Gilgal. As you remember from last week, God, at the moment of consecration, in the 12 verses preceding where I'm going to start here in, in Joshua 5, it says that when they consecrated themselves to God, before they're going to take the land, fear has already melted the hearts of those in Canaan they are poised for battle, and God says, consecrate yourselves. When they do that, it says God rolled away the reproach of Egypt. No longer were they called slaves. And then they, then they celebrate the Passover, and the Passover was celebrated because Egypt had taken the firstborn of God. Israel as a nation, as we look in Exodus, God calls them his firstborn son. And this Passover celebration reminds them that they are sons of God. They are no longer slaves, but they are sons. They are, the slave does not inherit anything. It is only the son or the daughter that would inherit anything. And I'm going to encourage you, some of us, we have forgotten our sonship or daughtership in Christ we're kind of hanging out in Gilgal and not going any further. But you are sons and daughters in Christ, and he has bequested to you an inheritance. And I'm going to challenge you, take the land. Church, can you hear me? Take the land. 
But as we do this, as we read through this, the first encounter that the Jews have, the Israelites have, is the city of Jericho. You remember the walls fall flat and they charge right in and et cetera, et cetera. And we're going to read, we're going to read that story this morning. But as we read it, I want you to kind of step back and see a picture of your life in this battle. I want you to imagine Jericho like a stronghold in your life. Literally, Jericho was a stronghold. Do you know what a stronghold is? It's a fortified city or fortified town. It has walls. It's very difficult to penetrate because of these walls that you either have to throw hooks up and pull the wall down, which if it's a thick wall, it's next to impossible to do. Or you have to somehow scale the wall. And if you scale the wall, then that means you're going to be subject to their arrows, to a variety of a barrage of weaponry that could kill you. So you have to overwhelm them, much as they did in Normandy Beach. What was it? 10,000 that lost their lives. And by just the sheer numbers that swarmed the beach, they were able to take Normandy and then march into Germany. I believe that when we move out of our Gilgal, when we move beyond this idea, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, and we have the kingdom of God before us to walk in all the days he's granted us here on earth, we need to occupy our time. And there are battles that need to be had. This is the concept of taking the land. And those battles are in here and they are out there. Now, when they are out there, remember, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against that boss of yours that is super critical of even the best that you do at work. He is not your enemy. Don't start talking about him behind his back. That's called, you know, office gossip. It undermines his authority. Get rid of that. But our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers and the authorities and the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's where our real battle is. It's spiritual. We can't see it. If you will, it's demonic in nature. That's the enemy. Us taking the land is both an internal struggle and an external struggle. Today, I want to focus, just as far as application, when we're talking about taking Jericho, I want to focus on the inner struggle. I want you to see some of these strongholds in your lives, walled fortresses, sins, pet sins, if you will, that God needs to deal with in order for you to be successful. Do you know why when, he, when, he, when they came into the land, they had to destroy everyone, everyone? No one would be left. You need to step back and say, well, God, that is just, that is just so harsh. Why would you, why would you do this? And it's because, as I'm saying, these people were, were so engrafted and, and that the, the occult practices were so ingrained in them, sacrificing their children in the fire. Excuse me, but much as abortion in our day. But the truth is, God said, you got to get rid of these people because if you don't, they will lead you into idolatry and, and sexual sins and you name it. And so we're going to look at this concept of taking the land here, taking the land here in our hearts. And how is it that we do that? You're with me now in, Je in Joshua chapter 5, starting with verse 13. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of Yahweh, the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This next verse is somewhat parenthetical. Now, Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord, not the commander, 
of the army. But the Lord, Yahweh, said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its kings and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have all the people give a shout, a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the people will go up, every man straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the people advance, march around the city with the armed guard going ahead of the Ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the Ark of the Lord's Covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests and blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the Ark. All this time, the trumpets were sounding. But Joshua had commanded the people, do not give a war cry. Do not raise your voices. Do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout. Then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once. Then the people returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning and the priest took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priests sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that are in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who were with her in her house will be spared because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All of the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must not go into his, and must go into his treasury. When the trumpet sounded, the people shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So every man charged straight in and took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's home and bring her out all who belong and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men, these would be the two spies. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel, keeping them safe, of course. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it. But they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab, the prostitute, with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. At that time, Joshua pronounced his solemn oath, Cursed before the Lord is the man who undertakes to rebuild the city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, will he lay its foundation? At the cost of the youngest, will he set up its gates? So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. One thing that just amazed me as I'm reading through this, and maybe you felt somewhat amazed too, Joshua is probably going for a morning walk, a morning prayer walk. And as he is going on this walk, just communing with God, how are we going to do this? I want your strategy, not mine. 
And in this process of, of walking, he encounters, and the Bible doesn't say it's a man. He introduced, uh, I mean, an angel. He's introduced as a man. And the man is obviously dressed for battle. He's standing in front of him, and it says that he has a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua approaches him aggressively. And I want you to write that word down, aggressively. Joshua, how many times does it say in the Bible when someone encountered an angel? Because we do know that this is an angel. And if it's not an angel, may I suggest perhaps even the pre-incarnate Christ. He is the captain of the heavenly armies. That as they approach an angel, the angel always says what? Do not be afraid. Over and over, Old Testament and New Testament, do not be afraid. Does the angel even suggest that here? No. And yet, Joshua is encountering an angel, or perhaps even Christ himself. We're not sure. It's not clear enough. But here, as he's approaching him, he is dauntless. He is full of courage. He, the fear has no place in him. He sees this, this man, and I would, I would imagine that this man is somewhat imposing. I mean, after all, he is the commander of the Lord's army. He's not some wimp stick figure who looks like he never lifted a weight in his life. And this man is with drawn sword, and I would suggest even intimidating. But does that intimidate Joshua? Not even a little bit. And with sword drawn in his hand, he approaches him, and he said, hang on, buddy. You need to tell me right now, are you on our side, or are you on our enemy's side? I mean, he's in his face. Now, this is important as we face our Jericho, these strongholds in our life, because we cannot afford to be passive as we encounter them. And yet, many times, we, we, we can call them pet sins. That's exactly our posture when we face these sin issues in our life. We have lived with them all of our life. We come into this relationship with Christ, and they, we, we just live with them. We just continue in these things. God is not frustrated and angry with us and just wondering, when, when is Mike Curtis ever going to get his act together? He's not pulling his hair out. He's not wringing his hands. When are you just going to start living for me? You know, that was my view of my heavenly father in my early 20s, late, late teens, early 20s. And God had to change that and show me this patient, Heavenly Father, God does not want us to be passive. He doesn't want us to just hang out at the gates of the kingdom of God. He wants us to be aggressive and take the land, the stuff in here. And, and, and the first thing that we need to see is this aggressive posture of Joshua. He is ready for a fight. I want to ask you, are you ready for a fight? In dealing with this junk in here, the jealousies, the envies, the gossip that comes out of our mouths, the fears and the intimidations that we feel, the self-pity parties that we throw, the, the, the lusts and the anger, even the violence, the drunkenness, the sexual addictions in our life, are we ready for a fight? Too many in the body of Christ are content, you know, there's, there's some risk that's involved in this. You better believe there's a lot of risk. It will mean you totally laying down your life. That's what's at risk. You'll lose everything that is yours because it's now God's. But Joshua has this aggressive posture. And, and it's interesting how the angel or the messenger, this man, responds to Joshua. He said, in, I'm paraphrasing, look, buddy, whether, I'm on your, whether I am on your side or the enemy's side, that is not the issue. You want to know what the issue is? Whose side are you on? Whose side are you on, Joshua? 
And I'm going to challenge you. It is not whose side whoever is on. The question is and always will be, whose side are you on? Not is God on my side or not? Because there's the, the truth is sometimes the lies of the enemy that whispers in our ears, God is not really for you. And he speaks lies and deceptions and he sucks us into these self-pity parties that we did just mess with our minds. And the question is not whether God is really for me. That's a done deal. Of course he is. You're not a slave any longer. You are a son. This is your inheritance. You're a daughter. This, you come into his presence and enjoy everything that he has for you. That's the promised land. But he is telling you to deal with this and to inherit everything and to enjoy it. The junk in here needs to be dealt with. First idea, first point. Be aggressive. Now, I'm going to qualify this. That sounds like a lot of man's efforts. It sounds like good works. It sounds like, well, if I just do enough, God will deal with this stuff in my life. And can I tell you right off the bat, that is not what I am talking about. The problem that we have, I think, is that when we think of When we think of sin issues, many times we picture a scale in our mind. And Stephen, you, you brought this up wherever Stephen is. He brought this up in the teen leaders meeting. There we go. In the teen leaders meeting Friday night. But many times we view our sins and good deeds like on a balance, the balance of justice. You ever see those scales? And, and, and we've done a lot of bad things and it's tipping this way and we feel like, what do I got to do? Well, I've got to do what? I got to do more good deeds and balance this thing out. And, and really, if I'm going to gain favor, I don't want it just to be balanced out. I better, I better tip the scales in my direction with a bunch of good deeds. And we think that God, to, to, to deal with our sin, we have to lean on this side of good works. And God is saying, you know what? That's not the issue. The issue is what's on this side. It's the sins. And when it comes to our salvation, many times people in this day think that if I just do enough good deeds, I'll make it. Many times when I ask people, so if, if you were to, to die tonight, do you think you would go to heaven? They would many times say yes. And when I ask them why, they say, well, I've, I've never been a murderer. I've never, you know, I've never stolen anything. They back up. At least it wasn't real expensive because <laughs> almost all of us have stolen something, have we not? Um, I haven't done anything really, really bad. And they get this picture of sins and it's like no, the really bad sins are like really heavy. And, you know, that would tip the scale. So I haven't done that. And, and in all honesty, they say, I've been a pretty good person. I've gone to church. Well, Kind of. Um, I, I, there have been, okay, well, there have been times in which I gave to the church and times in which I prayed and, you know, I pray over my food and, you know, I, I try anyways to do good things and they have this idea of a scale. And when I'm reading through my Bible, I don't see that. I don't see a scale. Because Isaiah 64, 6 says all of our righteousness apart from Christ, all of them, our best efforts, filthy rags. Ouch, filthy rags. He says, what I really have to do is I have to, all of these sins over here, I got to get rid of them. I got to get rid of them. You can't have this and have this relationship with an infinitely holy God anymore than you can take darkness into light. The darkness flees. Darkness can never be in the presence of light. You follow me. God has to deal with our sin. He has to get rid of it. I want you to just imagine. So, there's been a joke going around the church about my pickiness concerning our carpet. I just look at my carpet and he said, I mean, on, our carpet looks pretty filthy to me in my opinion. Am I really being picky about my carpet right now? No, I'm not. I, to be honest, I'm so anxious when I've got some time in the next week or two to be able to clean this. But the truth is, 
My kids, even my wife, will joke about something being spilled on the carpet. Now, how many of you would be just a little bit concerned if someone had a whole jar of pickle juice and spilled it on your carpet? Okay, that did happen to me. I didn't realize it until I came down one early morning and stepped in something that was wet on the carpet and wondered, what's this? And I thought, well, maybe someone spilled water. And I smelled it, and it was like, what? This is vinegar. Yeah, anyways, I want you to imagine your child, and you're not home at the time. Maybe they're babysitting the younger ones. They spill grape juice. Couldn't even imagine that, ugh. Grape juice? They spill grape juice on your carpet. And so before you get home, they're wondering, what do I do? What do I do? I'll just dab it with this rag here. That didn't do anything. I know what I'll do. I'll vacuum the whole carpet. I'll make the rest of the carpet look really good. Then when my mom and dad get home, they'll be so happy that I'll clean the carpet. They'll just say to that big old purple spot in the carpet, that's no big deal. Oh, I forgive you. No, no, that's not enough. I, I, I've, got to, I've got to clean the rest of the house. Then they'll be really happy with me. So they take the rag that they just stuck in the grape juice, and they start cleaning everything. And by the time you're done, you look around and say, oh, my goodness, there's grape juice everywhere now. <laughs> Do you realize that apart from Christ, lost in our sin, We can do no good, Romans 3, because even the good that we do is tainted by that grape juice, tainted by our sin. Everything that we do is tainted by our sin. The issue is not all the good works that we can do and how well we can clean the house. We got to get rid of the grape juice stain. And so we come before our dad and we fall down on our knees and beg for mercy. <laughs> okay, that was a joke, by the way. And, and dad says this, not a problem. I got this. And you're in shock and amazement. I'm not grounded for like the rest of my life. This is awesome. And dad says, I just have something that's very simple here. And he takes out this phenomenal, completely fictitious, because we know nothing can take grape juice stains out. But he takes out this bottle and he sprays it on and he cleans it up. And before you know it, the grape juice is gone. And you're just thinking, hallelujah, I get to live and see another day. We're excited. You see, the issue is not how clean the carpet can look to impress dad or how clean the house can look now that you've wiped grape juice all over it. The issue is we got to get the stain out. Now, I'm going, where I'm going with this is there's a sin issue here. And when I suggest we need to be aggressive, what I am not saying is, well, if we just do enough good works, then God will turn a blind eye to these strongholds in my life, and I'm good. After all, it's all about God's grace and his forgiveness, and he'll love me anyway, and we have chosen to camp out in Gilgal and never take the land. Point number one, be aggressive. I think there's a football cheer has to do with that. But be aggressive. Galatians 3.3 says, after beginning with the spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Are you still trying to do all of these good works and, and hope to gain favor with God? Never. It has always been about God's grace. And so the rest of the, my time right now, I want us to, I want to paint a picture. We've got 20 minutes left. I want to paint a picture of God's grace because that's exactly what we are going to need at this moment. God's grace to see these strongholds, these sin issues dealt with. I think it's rather interesting that in verse 1, chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one went in. It's kind of like a verse that's thrown in there, and you have to step back and say, why did we need that? I was kind of getting involved in the story here. I mean, the angel's talking to us, take your shoes off, it's holy ground, and God gives a command how to take Jericho. Come on, I want to see this. I mean, if if it was turned into a movie, it would be awesome. Awesome. 
And now you throw in this, oh, oh, and by the way, just in the midst of this dialogue between Joshua and the angel and the Lord, and, oh, and by the way, now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. What's up with that? Look what's right before that verse. What is the focus of Joshua right there, of, and him writing this, him being the author? Why did he put that in? The angel is trying to communicate to Joshua where you are standing is holy ground. Why would it be holy? For only one reason. God is here. Joshua, you need to realize that I'm sent as a messenger, but the truth is right now, God is here. And where you're standing is holy ground. Now, he's already hit the deck in reverence to the angel. So he removes his shoes, his sandals, and he respects that this God is here right now. You know the other place that's well known for this being said and this is holy ground? It's before the burning bush. And God says, Moses, take your sandals off because where you're standing is holy ground. And at that moment, the Lord began to reveal to Moses this incredible plan of how he was going to free the Israelite slaves from Egyptian bondage. And right now, the Lord is about to tell Joshua, phase two. Now that you've left Egypt and you're no longer slaves, but now you're sons and ready to inherit, here's how you take the land. And what we find in the, pre, in the following verses is this holy charge given to Joshua about how to take the land. And, and, and I'm just going to pause here for a moment. I'm going to give you an example of a stronghold that I had to deal with in my life. And I needed to deal with it aggressively and in the following ways that I'm going to outline here briefly. But there would be times in which I would go through problems, struggles, and even you know, as, a, as someone who had been working with teens for a number of years, I can still remember this time in which I was starting the business back in early 90s, 94, I guess it was. And it was not unfolding the way I had planned. And I felt so convinced that God had called me to Orlando. And God, be, God had to deal with an issue in my heart because I, I can still remember the place. I'm not gonna get into all the details of what happened, but as, I am, as I've pulled over, I'm eating my lunch for the next hour to two hours with not being able to get into any account, my family's finances on the line, any future church being birthed on the line, my life on the line, I just began to pour out my complaints to God. And I said, God, are you for me or not? Because from my perspective, it really looks as if you have abandoned me. Where are you and all? I thought you had really called me to Orlando and now, not even one dealership in the last two weeks has even allowed me to touch one of their cars. I mean, this is horrible. How am I going to support my family? What am I going to do? God, you need to step in because right now, I'm sorry, but it looks as if you have totally abandoned me. And God had to pause there. He had to, he had to crash my pity party at that moment. That's exactly what that was. It was embarrassing. When God, when God pegged me with that, I mean, here, I'm a guy. I mean, I don't throw pity parties. Oh, please, really? And God had to say, oh, yes, you do. Oh, yes, you do. Woe is me. God is not loving me. He loves all of the people over there and over there so much more than me. I mean, what about all these other pastors who ever chartered ch started church? And look how well they're doing. And, and God, it's like you've kicked me to the curb. Thank you so much. I mean, where are you right now, God? I mean, have any of you ever had pity parties? I mean, even just a little bit like that. And God had to rebuke me. He was so firm with me and he spoke so directly to my heart. And he said, Mike, this is a stronghold in your life. You are not convinced that I love you. That's a problem. Right now, you need to be convinced that I love you and that I have not abandoned you because it's not about which side I am on. That's a done deal. I'm on your side. It's a matter of whose side are you on? 
So I'm on your side, God. I'm on your side. And if that means uh, trials and struggles and hardships, I'm willing to forfeit the comfort to follow you. Whatever you want in my life, God. And from that moment on, God called me out. I, I mean, in my sin, he called me out. He said, Mike, this is an issue in your life. Deal with it now because it's a sign of immaturity. Wow, that was like emasculating God. Man, and God said, well, if the shoe fits. And so God had to deal with this. And there were times in which I would start entering into these pity parties and God would say, hang on, because it would almost always happen in prayer. And God would say, you know what? This is really an unholy prayer right now. Well, you're rebuking me for praying? <laughs> excuse me. I... And God said, no, excuse me, because you need to deal with this issue in your life. Do you trust me or do you not? That's a simple question. And I'm asking a simple answer, but it will determine how you walk this out right now. Are you going to embrace this truth? Are you just going to doubt my love every time you face a problem in your life? Because it sours your disposition. And so God, whenever I would start praying and I would just start throwing out these complaints, and they were, God understands when we are frustrated. But when we start talking about God, you just don't love me. That's where he steps in and said, wait, 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 wait. Have you ever had, if you're an adult parent, have you ever had your child say to you, you just don't love me? <laughs> Isn't there something inside of you that says, whatever's in that, in you that's making you say that right now, I want to strangle it. That is so untrue. <laughs> Get rid of that stinking thinking. I mean, I know what that's like. My, my kids have said that. You I mean, just the other day when I, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but my kids, have, they don't feel that way about me anymore. So, uh, but the truth is, I think God is somewhat offended because this is sin when we doubt his love like this. We need to move beyond that. God needed to deal a death blow to me. I want you to look at something here. We see that this is called holy ground. In chapter 6, verse 1, we have this scene set up. Jericho is locked up. It's shut up tight. No one goes out. No one comes in. You, you, you get this pause, brief pause in which there is a battle that we are about to enter into. And, and so this right now for Joshua is a holy moment. It's on holy ground. And we see a few things unfold that I'm going to go through very quickly. Number one, seven priests with seven trumpets are supposed to precede the ark of God. They're supposed to walk around the city seven times and on day once for seven days. And on day seven, they're supposed to walk around the city seven times. This concept of seven in the Old Testament and New Testament gives us this, it, it's in, in this concept of what's called numerology, but what do numbers mean? What's the significance of numbers like 3, 7, 10, uh, 12, 40? They have significance. God understands this. But this number 7 means completion, perfection. It's many times associated with God. And the normal Jewish reader who's reading through this almost gets set up. God is in this and he is about to do something. And we know that that's the conclusion God wants us to come to because he has them take the Ark of the Covenant. On the Ark of the Covenant, that it was called the mercy seat. That's where the two cherubim were seated with their wings like this. You've seen the Raiders of the Lost Ark. They did an okay job with depicting the Ark. But on that seat, is where God sat. That was the presence of God himself right there. And they're taking the ark into battle. 
And there's seven priests leading the way with seven trumpets. You get the sense God is in our midst. Not only is the ark going, not only is the number seven being um, proclaimed here very clearly, but they're to take trumpets and blow the trumpets. Do you know what trumpets were used for? If you want, you can write this verse down, but Numbers 31.6 says that trumpets were used to signal something. Well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to kind of figure that one out. But the Bible already tells us that's why he uses trumpets. It's to, it's to announce something. It's to signal something. Even, to, even when you're watching movies and such and you see men lined up with these big, long trumpets and they're blowing, what is about to happen? The king is about to come. Isn't that right? He's announcing the presence of the king. The Jews were, were announcing the presence of God. And they were, in essence, saying to the, to the residents of Jericho, you know what? God is in our midst, the one true God. Yeah, the God that parted the Red Sea that you heard about and that you're terrified of, the God that provided manna in the desert, the God that empowered us to take the kings on the east side of the Jericho, he is here in our midst today, and he is going to take you down. All right, it, and that's what the trumpet blast was announcing. The shout, shout unto God with the voice of triumph. When it says here, he's talking about the shouts. He says, where is it? Verse 10, do not give a war cry. Do not raise your voices. Do not say a word. He is talking about this shout that is about to take place. This shout was a war cry, but it was, it was as if it was a war cry in faith. We are taking you down. Why would they be able to give that shout of victory even before the walls came down? Because they were told to. In some ways, that war cry was, a, was trying to intimidate the enemy. But here is a prophetic utterance. You are coming down. We are taking this city. You know, for God... To deal with these strongholds in our life, it is not all about me. It's not grabbing the best, the, the top, one of the top 10 best sellers of self-help books on the market. You go to Books a Million and, and those books sell, sell, sell because people are always wanting to fix themselves. And if they're humble enough, because maybe their wives have constantly pointed out, you know, there's a real issue in your life. The guys, they get a clue and they say, well, you know what? Maybe I should fix myself. And that's the problem in itself because we're always trying to fix ourselves. This is about God and in his presence, he fixes us. Okay, so we're starting to see a balance here. God says, hey, you need to be aggressive and you're going to take the land. But on the other hand, you know what? This is all about me. This is all about me. This is about me taking the land. This is a God thing. We, we are called to just follow what he wants us to do. Our attitude must be aggressive. It must be resolute. But we must cry out for God's intervention. It is not about me just exercising self-will, self-control. New Year's resolutions, this is what I will do. How many times have you wrote those? Let me ask a better question. How many of you, how many of us have written the same ones year after year after year? Maybe that's a better question. But it, it, it's about me and me and what I can do. And God just needs to bring us to the end of ourselves and say, you know what, God? This is not about me. This is about you. I can do all things through my own self-will. No, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Christ. It is all about Christ. It's not about behavior modification. It's not about trying to fix me, trying to fix me, but crying out to God, you have got to fix me. Now, we see what happens. The Bible says that the walls fell flat. Actually, Archaeology is, is a science probably about 150 years old today. Many people think archaeology is something that's been around for thousands of years. It is not. 
as a science about 150 years. It's a new science. They've learned a lot. You've probably heard about how people doubted many things that the Bible reported, and time after time, after time, after time, after time, they, dis they discover something that says, oh, no, we were wrong. There really were Hittites that lived in this area, just like the Bible says. As a matter of fact, they were a huge empire. Well, hello, God was right again. And we see the scenario played out over and over. Well, there were questions. Well, did Joshua and the Israelites really conquer Jericho? Because as we dig in the foundations of Jericho, because there are, there are tells, there are mounds. You build a, t build a town or a city, and then it crumbles, and then you build on top of it, and they, they form a mound, or what they call tells. And when they dug down through, they didn't find any evidence. And it was only because they had not dug far enough, because they didn't think Joshua had taken the land as far back as what the Bible says. So they went further and they found a layer of ash that had been hardened, of course, in rock. And they found that the walls that were there had completely been laid flat and that the Israelites had to climb this mound and they were able to go straight in, or whoever first destroyed this city of Jericho. And as they were unpacking this tell, this mound, they discovered something, that there was one section of the wall that had not been destroyed. My Bible tells me the reason why that would be, because Rahab's home, she lived in her, with her parents, was a part of the wall of Jericho. And to signal where she was, because she had kept the spies, not betrayed Israel, and had done something honorable to the Lord, God said, I'm going to spare your life and all of your family. Hang out a scarlet rope from your window, and that will be our signal that whoever's in that home in the wall, we will not kill them, but spare them. And there was a portion of this wall, not big, but a portion of the wall that was not collapsed. Everywhere else around it was and the entire city was burned to the ground. God kept his promise. But it's because the Jews, the Israelites, obeyed him, and God knocked the walls down. And I just want to ask you, you don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you have built up walls around these pet sins in your life? To the point whether it's pride or just sheer desire. You know, okay, God, you can have everything else in my life, but not this right here. This, this is my precious. Sorry, got lost on that one. Uh, this, this, this is mine. You can have all these other things, but, oh, yeah, and, and yeah, not the, or not this one either, okay? These right here, you can have everything else, but just not these. And God needs to take down these walls because when Jesus comes in and he wants to revamp, he comes directly to the locked closets in the house of your life. And he says, I'm sorry, but this door is locked and I need it opened. Give me the key. And part of what needs to happen is the surrender in our life in which we say, okay, God, tear down these walls that I have erected and come in and invade my life and destroy this junk, these sin habits in my life. I've tried. I can't do it. You must help me. Do you realize that in order for you to gain victory, you have to first surrender? That's one of the principles in this upside-down kingdom called the kingdom of God. If you want victory, you must first surrender. And I want to just look at this last point here. And I've got one minute to do it, and I need 10, but I'm going to keep it short. I did mention it's amazing that once the walls fell down, they destroyed the entire city. There were no men, women, children. There were no animals. They, God had told them completely destroy everything. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to confess I don't fully understand the heart of God in that. But I do know. It was both good and just. And so when I encounter things like that in my life and I can't make sense of it, I will always step back and say, God, 
I don't understand it. I don't understand why you've allowed this stuff in my life, but I know this, you are both good and just. And I am content with that. And as they destroyed everything, God honored that to the point where Joshua said, he concluded with this, that if anyone rebuilds this city, a curse be upon him. About 530 years later, a man under the reign of King Ahab, the most wicked king that Israel knew, rebuilt the city of Jericho. He lost his firstborn and his secondborn, his youngest. And this prophecy of Joshua, 530 years later, was fulfilled. You know what? When God destroys a sin issue in our life, we need to be ever so careful that we never erect it again. It is devoted to the Lord. This issue in my life, if it's lust, if it's anger, if it's violence, if it's alcohol addiction or drug addiction or uh, fears, worries, anxieties, it's surrendered to you. And the enemy's going to try and bring triggers into your life to cause you to, to draw you back to these one-time addictions. Don't think that because it's over, hey, you're free forever, baby. No, the enemy, he hates to surrender ground in your life. He may have lost you to the king of kings, but he still wants hooks in your life. And you, you've cut off those hooks. He's going to keep trying. He is not stupid. He knows better how you tick than you do. He knows your triggers better than you do. And so I'm going to encourage you, let God decimate your life. You understand me when I say decimate your life. These issues, this baggage that we bring into this Christian life, let him eradicate them. No mercy. When you pray, God, deal with this. You say, God, show no mercy. That, that's a radical prayer. Show no mercy. Matthew 5. Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5. I'm going to get it here in just a moment. Here we are. Matthew 5, 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Now, he's not being literal there. He's using exaggeration, but he sure makes a point, doesn't he? If you're right, I, if there's a sin issue in your life, radically amputate it. You cannot treat sin casually. You must be aggressive. You must say, God, it all goes. Not just a little part. You don't just say, okay, God, you can have this corner of this sin issue. No, it is all yours. Decimate it. Destroy it. Amputate it out of my life. This is a principle called radical amputation. God, show no mercy. No mercy. You see, church, again, this is, this is what the Bible means when it calls us to surrender to him. You know, I was at a deal, not a dealership, uh, at a tire place yesterday, and the guys told me, yeah, you're going to rotate your tires, but the truth is it's going to be about an hour and a half to the two-hour wait, and I just thought, oh, I'm so glad that I bought some material to read and work on and such. So uh, I just said, okay, I'll, I'll wait. And I sat down, and there was a Watchtower Map Tower magazine next. That's put out by Jehovah's Witnesses. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is not God. He's a created being. And I just thought, you know what, I, they don't understand the gospel. I, I understand that. But let me just read. I want to see what, what they have to say. What's their approach? They talked about getting rid of drug addictions and alcoholism. And without fail, all of the testimonies went this way. You have a drug addiction. You're violent towards your family. Here's what these people did. They started reading the Bible. They joined a Jehovah's Witness, Kingdom Hall, and they were free from it. Story after story after story. And by the end of the magazine, little tiny thing, I, I was utterly amazed. Not one time was the cross of Jesus Christ mentioned. Not one time. Church, that is the power of the gospel. 
The cross of Jesus Christ is what makes that radical amputation possible. The cross of Christ didn't just rescue me from my sins and forgive me. The cross of Jesus Christ was poured out so that he would break the chains of sin in my life. As a prisoner in this dungeon of darkness, the anointed one, Isaiah 61, the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news and skipping down to set the captives free. He didn't just call you to be his own, to wash you clean and forgive you, but to set you free. He's not called you to camp out in Gilgal for the rest of your life. He hasn't called you to just have a great time at the gates of the kingdom. He says, this is my entire kingdom. You've inherited it. It's yours. Walk it. Own it. To do that, to do that, we've got to get beyond Gilgal. There's sacrifice there's radical amputation. There's not passiveness. There's aggressiveness. There's a pursuit after the presence of God. There is a quest for complete and total surrender. Would you really want to watch a Super Bowl game in which they're all lined up, ready to play, and the ball is not even kicked off. The referee would step in within seconds. Because there's, there's millions of dollars at stake here, okay? <laughs> not just from your pocket. And he would blow the whistle, and he would say, game on! Game on! And he would rebuke the players, come on, game on! And I tell you what, that ball would get kicked off. And I'm going to challenge you, church, game on! Game on. There's too much at stake here. Taking the land requires our total surrender and giving to him radical devotion, totally allowing God or, or allowing God to totally destroy that which is in us, the Bible calls the flesh, so that we are free, free to serve him. This isn't all about me and self-will. This is about God, God's presence in this camp to destroy that refuge, that fortress, that stronghold of sin in my life. Can you stand with me? I just say before I pray, ah, the heart of God is the heart of a father to you right now. This is not God's judgment. He's not scowling. He is saying with open arms, come inherit everything I have for you. But let's leave that at the door. I want you to feel the father's heart right now and his love for you. Last night, Zach gave me permission to share this. Last night I got a call, and you know, there's kind of a plan that's been set in place when Kate goes into labor, and it's serious labor. Um, I'm gonna, if it's at night especially, or I guess pretty much whenever, but I'm supposed to go over there, and, uh, and, and then that way um, they'll be able to head out to the hospital, and I'll be with Rusty. And Rusty had been fussing, it's 12.30 at night, I go over there and, or is it 12, whatever it is. And I'm trying to calm him down. And at, at one point I say, how about if you just sit, lay down in the crib and grandpa will, will read a story to you. So he was all about grandpa reading a story to him. So he, he didn't want to lay down. He wanted to sit up. I guess he wanted to see the picture. So I got this book down and I'm straining with my eyesight. Big words, but I still couldn't read it well. And I'm reading the story to him and we're all done. And he says, okay, Rusty, night-night now. Mm-mm. And he keeps doing this. Going like, you know, Rusty, he goes like this. And I, what, what do you want? Do you, do you want to lay down with Grandpa? And Because uh, I'm sleeping in the next room. Yeah, yeah. So I pick him up and I try to lay him down in the bed next to me. And he is just not wanting to fall asleep. I say, okay, Rusty, come with me. Eventually, after five or ten minutes, this isn't working. So I'm sitting down, and he keeps going like this. 
and he keeps saying the word dadu, dadu, which is his way of saying daddy. And I said, do you miss mommy and daddy? And he keeps going like this. And I say, okay, Rusty, mommy and daddy aren't here right now. And I just need you to fall asleep, please. <laughs> it's one o'clock in the morning. And he keeps going like this. So I said, oh, okay. I, I know what he's wanting. He's wanting to go to the garage because he likes to hang out with Zach in the garage. And I got to show you, the car is not there. So I take him, and on the way there, he goes like this, and he stops me, and there's a picture of Zach and Kate on their wedding day. And he's pointing to that, and I look at it, and I say, Mommy and Daddy. And then he goes like this, and he points to the other side of the room. So I go to the other side of the room, and he points to another wedding picture, and I say, Mommy and Daddy, yes. And then he does this, and he's pointing to the garage. And so I take him into the garage, I turn the light on, and he just stands there, and it's like, if he could talk in sentences, he would say, where's their car? Where's mommy and daddy? And he just stands there, and he's kind of walking around. And he, he doesn't know he's looking around like, what do I do now? This is where I wanted to be, and mom and dad's not here. The car, they left. And I take him back into the room, and I sit him down on my knee. And he keeps just saying, dad, do. Dad do, dad do, and pointing. I keep saying, but Rusty, mommy and daddy are gone, and don't you want to see Ludo Cooper come out of mommy's tummy, and you're going to be a big brother? Nothing would convince him. <laughs> and my heart began to break, because what I realized at that moment was he loves Kate so much, but Zach is the one who puts him down at night. Dad do is the one. That puts him down. And if Rusty could speak in sentences, he would say, okay, Grandpa, I love you, but I want my daddy here right now because he's the one who puts me down at night. I don't want to hurt your feelings, but I want my daddy. And I'm just going to ask you tonight, this morning, would you be willing to cry out to your daddy? to your heavenly father. You know, when I put my kids down at night, I would sing a song over them. And there was one particular song I would sing over and over and over every night for years and years and years. And when Kate got married, that was the song that she and I danced to, You Are My Hiding Place. As we close in prayer, I want you to cry out to your dad, your father, your heavenly father who loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you so that by the cross you'd be set free. Let's pray. If you want to come to the altar, that's, that's totally up to you. Allow Spirit of God right now to speak to your heart and move you. Dadu, Abba, Father, come to our rescue right now. If we have never invited you in and have complete control, we do that right now and we say, I surrender. You be my Savior and my Lord and Wash me clean. Free me. Come in like a flood. Show me your love. Show me the power of the cross right now and set me free and walk in freedom. And God, I ask that you would allow me to, to inherit all of this good that you have in store for me. I quiet my soul before you. And in desperation, I ask you, God, rescue me. Rescue me. Don't let me camp out in Gilgal. That's so temporary. Empower us, each of us, God, empower us to take the land 
to, to deal with the junk in us so that we as your servants can do all of that that you have called us to out there and deal with the junk out there, but you gotta deal with this junk in us, God. Please, come to our rescue right now, God. Heavenly Father, flood me with your presence and with your love. Overwhelm me with your goodness, God. Dadu, help me. God, you are so good. Your mercies are new every morning. Your loving kindness extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the skies. You are good. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm just going to encourage you, if, if you want prayer, this morning, there's a number of us leaders in the church would love to pray with you, pray over you however we can, whatever you want us to do. I love you guys. God bless you. Have an awesome, awesome week. Amen. Amen.